Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast, the latest on citrus research from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network. Welcome to the All In for Citrus podcast. I'm your host, Frank Giles, and as always, I'm joined by Michael Rogers, the director of the Citrus Research and Education Center in Lake Alford. Welcome, Michael. Uh, Thank you, Frank. Well, we're getting close to spring. Uh, It's a warm day, the the day we're recording the podcast, and that means bloom is is coming up. And, Michael, I think you've got some some tips and suggestions for growers uh, as as bloom gets started. Yes, and I mean, we kind of want to look past all the bad news we've had in terms of uh, the crop forecast and, you know, think about what we need to be doing for next year's crop. And um, uh, we, we've got on our uh, IPIS websites, we, and a lot, of, a lot of folks look at the uh, uh, citrus bloom induction forecast and the models that are, that are running. And we've been at a high level of bloom and, uh, you know, flower induction since early part of January. So we're, we're really headed well into bloom and uh, if you look at the models, I think right now they're predicting, depending on where you're in, you are in the state, anywhere from March 4th to March 6th being um, kind of the, the height or the peak of full bloom. Uh, but, but talking to our horticulturalist here, um, they've told me that in, in, if, unless we get some cold weather, it's probably actually going to be the end of February. So um, this is coming up on us pretty fast. And um, there's some things that you know, growers are going to want to think about uh, as we're approaching bl- uh, bloom right now. Um, uh, one of those things, um, you know, has to do with uh, what you shouldn't be doing to the trees during the bloom period. And we've talked about this in past podcasts in terms of, you know, we've really been talking a lot about the use of gibberellic acid and other plant hormones. And really at this point in the year right now, um, uh, I just want to reemphasize that you don't, if you're, if you're pursuing the idea of using gibberellic acid in your groves, now's not the time to do it. Um, we don't want to do this until probably uh, we hit, for at least from this point in the year, until we hit um, that early June drop, which you know sometimes occurs in May here in Florida. And uh, and the reason being is that by putting out you know gibberellic acid right now this time of year, um, you're going to probably uh, set set the trees up to produce or hold more fruit than they really can support. Um, these HLB affected trees can't support a huge fruit load. And so by putting out gibberellic acid this time of year between now and, say, into May, um, you might end up causing more harm than good to your trees by setting more fruit than the trees could actually hold. So that's one thing to think about. Um, we also do have to think about, uh, you know, this is the time of year as we're approaching bloom. Uh, most growers should have already gotten out or they're in the process of putting out one of those pre-bloom fertilizer applications. Um, you know, we need to make sure those trees aren't starved. They've got what they need to be able to set a good bloom. And then once we get through bloom, uh, one post-bloom fertilizer application as well. And one of the things I know folks have heard our, our horticulturalists talk a lot about is the importance of what you do right now, um, pre- and post-bloom, especially with this young developing fruit. This is really going to set the stage, or it's probably the most critical time of the year for ensuring next year's crop. Um, you know, the fertilization is important, but also don't overlook irrigation um, because like like you mentioned earlier, Frank, you know, we've, we've been kind of dry for the most part this time of year, but um, as you have young developing fruit, you need to be thinking about uh, making sure the trees stay well irrigated. And at this time of year, really, you know, the infrequent rain showers we have are not enough to do that. 
And so we're not necessarily thinking in terms of volume of, of irrigation, but the frequency. And trying to irrigate in small amounts very, very frequently so the trees don't dry out, get stressed. And, and that stresses at this time of the year will affect the quality and the yield uh, much later in the season. So that, that's important to be thinking about right now. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention real quick, um, which may or may not be an issue, but it's always on our mind once we get into bloom, is post-bloom fruit drop. And um, that is also something to be paying attention to that can really mess up your, your harvest for the coming year. Um, on our website, I know a lot of folks are familiar with the um, uh, Citrus Advisory System for PFD that Dr. Megan Dudney has put together. And um, you can go onto our website and look at the forecast for PFD in your area to figure out if, if, if it's a threat or if it's not, uh, not an issue. And, you know, right now we've been, if I looked at the map just a few minutes ago and everything seems to be green, which means we're good, we're in a low risk for PFD right now. But if, if we started to see more rain showers occurring with warm weather during the bloom, um, you'd want to check that website. Um, because, we, you know, right now we're all trying to save money. Um, our costs are, are high and we've got low yields. And uh, anything we can do to cut costs is going to be beneficial. And I think, you know, Dr. Dudney's uh, forecast models worked really well for growers in the past, um, saved them from making unnecessary fungicide applications for PFD when it wasn't going to be needed. So I would just encourage folks to check out that, that PFD, the Citrus Advisory System for PFD, um, uh, as we get into bloom to determine whether or not a fungicide is needed and, uh, and help make some of those decisions. Well, like you said, it's an important time of year setting up this crop uh, for next year. Also an important time of year for some events. We, we covered some of those last month, but I, I know you wanted to, to touch, uh, touch base again on a, a few of those. Yeah, we, we've got a, a number of events happening. Uh, I just want to emphasize a couple um, that we want to make sure folks are, get it on their calendar and register for in advance. And, and one of those is the Citrus Growers Institute uh, that our Citrus Extension agents put on every year in Avon Park. So just reminding folks again, that is Tuesday, April the 4th, and you can go online to register for that and make sure they've got your name and registration so you'll have a, have a good lunch there waiting for you as well. And the second of those is the Florida Citrus Show taking place down in Fort Pierce on Thursday, April the 13th. Encourage folks to go ahead and make plans to attend that and get registered. But, but all of our events that are taking place, there's a lot of other things that are happening around the state. Um, you can go on to the, um, you know, the Citrus Research website from IPIS or, or, say, the CREC website as well. We've got the full calendar that you can look at all the events and find out more information about what's going on, and we encourage folks to do that. Yep, lots going on as we get spring coming up here on us fast. And, Michael, thanks for joining us as always, and we'll catch up next month. Up next, we have Fernando Alferez. He's an assistant professor of citrus horticulture based at the Southwest Florida Research and Education Center in Immokalee. Fernando, you've been working a lot on the individual protective covers for citrus, and most people call them IPCs for short. Um, so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But first, just welcome to the podcast. We're glad you joined us. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. Thank you, Frank. Well, very good. Well, I know you've been studying the IPCs for uh, quite some time and looking at how they protect young citrus trees from the Asian citrus psyllid and therefore HLB. Just talk a little bit about how long you've been studying 
IPCs to protect citrus trees and, and what you've learned uh, throughout this research? Yes, uh, uh, we started uh, actually exactly five years ago. So our first trial was, was started in February 2018. And we started working with uh, Valencia trees uh, grafted on Cleopatra rootstock. And we covered those trees with the IPCs for about 30 months. And during this time, so this is more than more than two years, uh, during this time, all the trees were testing negative for HLB, and we didn't see any psyllid intrusion into the into the into the covers. So, so yes, uh, actually, uh, we were able to see that these 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 IPCs uh, work really well in protecting the the new planted citrus trees against HLV and 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 psyllid infestation. And you also, I mean, just in doing this research, obviously the the main main point of the research was seeing, you know, the protection against HLV, but you also did see some other benefits of using the IPCs on the young tree. Just talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yes, we we found also that that actually the the tree growth was greatly improved by by the IPCs. The trees were taller, uh, the the canopies were more dense, and even the the the, the leaves were larger. Uh, we measured the the leaf area, and and there was a significant improvement on on the leaf area, and also in chlorophyll content. Those leaves were having more chlorophyll than the than the leaves from the trees that were not covered. So in in, in general, there was a a great improvement on the on the physiology and the and the grow, <clears throat> excuse me and the growth of these trees. Well, I tell you what, you see those if you're driving through citrus country uh, nowadays, you see the IPCs everywhere. Whether it's a new block or resets, um, I was just driving by a grove recently, and it's it's quite a sight to see those uh, you know across an entire grove. Um, so growers have definitely taken notice of their benefits as evident in the field. Do you have any idea of what the adoption rate has been among the grower community? Well, we, we, we have done some, some estimates. And as you say, uh, the, the adoption has been massive. And, and one thing that we are saying is that uh, this, is, this is changing the, the Florida landscape. Uh, the, the estimate that we have uh, is that if we consider that in the last couple of years they, they have been planted about 15 acres of, of new trees, uh, and according to our estimate, at least 10,000 of these are using IPCs, and I say this because because what what growers tell us and what uh, some com companies, companies are telling us, then I would say that at least 60% of the new planted trees are covered now with, with IPCs. And I think this is a conservative estimate because the area that, that we are planting every, every year is increasing. And for instance, in the craft program, 
this is one of the main tools that growers prefer, as you just said, and and also is one of the strategies that uh, we at the Craft Crop Program are, are also encouraging. So yes, it's about 60% of the new plantings, I, I would say. Very good. And I know because obviously the big question is, as these trees get bigger, you have to take that protection off at some point. Um, and I know you've been doing a little bit of research on that and have some advice to growers of what they can do to protect the citrus trees once the IPCs are no longer uh, on the tree. Uh, yes, we have started some some research uh, recently, uh, and that builds up on 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 some data that we had uh, in the last few years. Um, we have been working with a with a group of of uh, plant growth regulators. These are called brassinosteroids, and what we have seen with brassinosteroids is that. Also in newly planted citrus trees, uh, this uh, plant regulator is is able to delay the, the the HLB infection in the in the newly planted citrus trees. So, for instance, uh, we were we were working with with a, with a, a, a research plot and 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 we were assessing a infection rate. And we found that if we didn't protect those trees, 80% of the trees were infected after six months. But if we were treating those with, with brassinosteroids uh, once per month, uh, we were able to reduce that from 60 to 25% of, of, of infection rate. So we were wondering if that could be a possibility once you remove the, the IPCs and you start applying brassinosteroids if this is feasible. So we got we got some funding from USDA last year to perform this 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 study, and we have started already to do that. And we are doing that in the field and also in the in the grove. And the data that we have now is that not only uh, delays HLB infection, it also has some repellent. Uh, repellent effect on, on psyllids, and I'm talking about this plant regulator, uh, brassinosteroids. Uh, so we have a double effect, uh, a delaying infection and a, a, an effect repelling the, the, the psyllids. So we are going to work about this, uh, about this topic in the, in, for the next couple of years. Well, that's very promising results that you're seeing early. Um, you know, I, I think this is a great example of the research community, yourself, and growers, and even the private industry, the, the suppliers of the IPCs working together to, you know, build a completely new practice that was never probably even considered before HLB. But now, as you, as you said, 60% adoption in these new plantings conservatively and just as you drive through citrus country, seeing them everywhere in groves, I think it's a great testament of all the the citrus industry segments working together to to try to fight this uh, HLB disease. So that's uh, that's a great uh, benefit that's come out of this. Yeah, I think so. I think this is this is very encouraging, and and and, and we are glad to be part of this of this effort. 
I, I think for us, for us, it's, it's, it's really, it's really nice to see this uh, working and 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 trying to provide a meaningful data for 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 the growers. Well, Fernando, I'm sure we'll have you back to talk about this uh, continued research that you have going, and we appreciate you joining us today. No, thank you very much. It was it was my pleasure to to share this time with you. Next up, we have Sarah Strauss. She is an assistant professor of soil microbiology. And Sarah, you're based at the Southwest Florida Research and Education Center in Immokalee, correct? Correct. Great. Well, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, by as your title indicates, we're going to talk a little bit today about soil mic, uh, microbiology. And I, I just want to start with something that I saw you speaking Gosh, it's been several years ago now, but talking about how much biology is in just a tiny amount of soil. So maybe maybe let's start there and just give that little little anecdote. Sure, and I agree. It's always good to start with putting things in perspective and and realizing and remembering how incredibly diverse and complex uh, the microbial world is in our soils. And so the estimate that we often cite and that I often mention uh, is that there can be over a billion microorganisms in a gram of soil, which is about the size of a quarter. Now, that can vary a bit based on the exact soil type, but the basic idea there, is, and this is true for, for soils all over, is that there is a huge number of microorganisms, bacteria, fungi, archaea, um, in soils, and there can be a huge amount of diversity in different types of those organisms. Uh, and so they play incredibly important roles in all sorts of functions that are important for tree growth, um, but it also makes them incredibly complicated to study. Yeah, and even even these sandy soils in Florida have a surprising amount of life in them, uh, as you said there. That's correct, yeah. It, the, the one billion estimate might be a little much for some of our soils, but uh, it might not be for some others. So um, it's, it's, uh, it's a pretty wide range. Well, I know in the citrus groves, you know, some of those groves, the, the the land's been worked for many years and the soil has been depleted some. And that's some of the research that you've worked on is the ways to enhance the biology in the soil and citrus groves and even in other crops. But we're talking citrus today. Uh, I guess maybe let's start with cover crops and, and, and you know, how how that's being utilized within citrus to maybe enhance the uh, microbiology in the soil. And then and there's some other benefits you can probably speak to as well. Sure. Yeah, we've been doing some research now for a couple of years on trying to quantify um, the benefits of cover crops and citrus. A lot of folks are already doing it and have been doing it for a while, but there's been less um, known, again, on exact quantities and, and measurements of, of what those cover crops are doing to the soils and hopefully the trees. And so that's what our studies have been focused on. And we've seen some really interesting things, um, particularly in the microbial world, which that's part that I'm particularly interested in, um, where we see some big changes in the abundances of um, 
bacteria and fungi in general when you plant cover crops. And so that those differences are, are in those row middles that are covered with cover crops. Um, and we see big differences in the types of organisms that are growing in the soil when you plant cover crops. So we see big changes in the numbers of organisms that are able to fix nitrogen. Um, this is whether we plant legumes or not, um, but we see an even greater increase in those organisms when you do plant legumes, which are also plants that have relationships with nitrogen-fixing uh, bacteria. Um, and we see differences even in the bacteria that are involved in denitrification. So all components of the nitrogen cycle are impacted and, and the organisms involved are changed when we plant these cover crop mixtures. And so a lot of our research now is trying to um, look a little bit more closely at how that is then impacting the tree. Um, the studies that we initially did were on pretty old trees that uh, don't always respond very quickly to things. Um, and so we have some studies now that are in much younger trees. We're actually going to be starting this spring um, planting some cover crops in a grove where the trees are, I believe, just about three or four years old. And we have some trials now in trees that are six years old and some others that are eight years old. Um, and both looking at uh, the ridge and the flatwoods area. So we're going to have a much wider comparison of some of these measurements that we've done previously just um, here in Immokalee on what happens when we plant cover crops. Well, that's good. And then, and then there's some, you know, obvious benefits like erosion and the soil temperature. Correct. Um, oh, we definitely see lower soil temperatures. Um, there's possibly some some changes and in, in benefits um, regarding soil moisture. We're still looking into some of that data. Um, We've seen some changes in soil organic matter and soil carbon. Those numbers are, are we're still pinning those, some of that down on, on some of these newer studies. Uh, we're seeing we've got some interesting um, preliminary results that where we've are indicating and showing that even though you're planting these. Um, cover crops in the row middles, um, that, that is still changing. A lot of our measurements are in the row middles. That still has the potential and still can change the microbes that are growing around your citrus roots. Um, the citrus tree roots are growing into the row middles as well, but that's also, we've got a, a separate little study that um, a graduate student is finishing up that is, is looking at, at trying to directly link some of those changes in the soil microbes from cover crops to changes that happen on on the tree itself. And so that's pretty exciting, too. And then you've got uh, enhanced habitat for beneficials. I know I've been in some groves where cover crops are, and there's just all kind of insects and activity going on there. Um, yeah, unfortunately, we haven't. I haven't been part of a, a study directly looking at that. We keep wanting to do it, um, but I, yes, <laughs> that that is a known benefit of cover crops. Excellent. And and I guess bottom line for growers is is you know obviously if it can help with their nutrition program and the health of the trees, um, that's a big plus. Uh, I've heard you know some say that they've been able to back off a little bit on fertilizer after they've been on a program for some time. You know, where are you on that in terms of the research and, and sort of, you know, kind of seeing where that fits into the puzzle? No, that's a good point. Um, so we haven't done any trials where we're reducing the amount of fertilizer yet, mostly because uh, that 
becomes tricky when you've got existing trials. But we are doing uh, a lot of um, more frequent measurements for a current trial looking at soil health specifically and how to measure soil health in, in um, cover crops and citrus groves. And so the hope is that those more frequent measurements of some of the nutrient cycling components um, will help us dial that in a little bit more as far as what quantifying how much cover crops are contributing to some of those nutrient uh, availability. And I know that, you know, there's a ton of different uh, species of cover crops and mixes and um, any particular uh, crops that stand out to you that are looking good in Florida? So, you know, this is also an area of continued experimentation on, on sort of trying to fine-tune and optimize what mixtures. And so, um, the one that I, that I always uh, mention that continues to amaze me in how well it performs is the daikon radish in our winter mixes. Um, that always seems to grow really, really nicely. Um, we have great results with uh, sun hemp in the summer. It grows well in our winter mixes as well, unless you get a freeze, and it's a bit sensitive to, to those colder temperatures. So uh, that that's something that we're working on, on trying to identify some additional legumes that would be good for the winter season. Um, we haven't had a whole lot of luck with some of the clovers, um, but that's something that we're trying to, to look into a little bit more closely. Um, but in general, we find having mixtures of legumes and non-legumes uh, tends to perform better, and we see bigger changes in, in some of the microbial communities and, and potential nutrient availability when we plant those mixes rather than just a monoculture. I had a, one grower I visited one time that had uh, turnip greens and mustard greens in the mix, mm -hmm. and I joked with him. I said, well, you could always come out and grab a mess for dinner every night. Yeah, too. <laughs> that's and right. Yes. And added benefit. Yep. Well, from there, maybe let's jump to compost. I know you've been doing uh, some research there, and there's some similar benefits of that practice. And maybe let's just talk about some of the uh, benefits of compost. Sure. So like cover crops, um, compost can, can have some similar benefits. Um, one of the ones that is discussed the most often, I think, is the potential to increase soil organic matter, which is, of course, a big issue for our sandy Florida soils. Um, also, like cover crops, compost has been shown to have uh, improved some moisture retention um, and, and have nutrient uh, cycling benefits as well. And so um, we've been conducting, we've had, uh, I believe treatments have been out for about three years, two, three years now. Um, we've been applying compost at uh, about four tons per acre um, to newly planted trees. And this was uh, a study funded by CRDF and um, Dr. Uta Albrecht uh, was leading this study. Um, so we also had different rootstocks involved. Um, and so looking at the differences in how um, rootstocks are responding to compost. And we saw some really interesting things um, with the microbial community um, in that different rootstocks had different responses to that compost in the, the bacteria that live on the roots, um, or at least near the roots in the rhizosphere. Um, and so that was uh, impressive for us to see, um, I think, particularly because 
Um, when you apply the compost, it it appears like, especially at that rate, it's it's a very fine layer. And so I was um, pretty impressed that we're seeing that kind of difference in the um, bacterial community with with that kind of application. Um, we're still teasing apart a lot of this data, um, particularly what this means for for some of the tree performance. And and Dr. Albrecht has a graduate student that's working on that part. Um, but these initial results of these changes in the bacterial community of the rhizosphere um, based on the rootstock uh, and whether it had compost are, are certainly interesting um, in going forward. For growers out there that are, are using compost or are considering it, um, how important is knowing the source, you know, where they're getting it? Um, there are certainly... Uh, a, Differences in in how composts are treated and made, um, and so um, from the the microbia, there's you want your compost to be reach certain temperatures and and things like that to to make sure that they are fully what we call mature composts. Um, and so that's important to understand how the compost was was made, how it was turned, how long it's been. Um, you know, being treated um, to to reach that state that will then be put out in your groves. Um, there are also considerations. I know Dr. Ramdas Kanasari has done work on this um, regarding um, weed species and and presence um, in your compost, and so that's certainly something to think about as well. Um, yep. But yes, there are, are differences in compost. Yep. Um, in fact, uh, Ramdas did an article in our citrus industry here uh, last month on that very topic. So that was that was timely. Um, <laughs> in the two, I mean, do you do you have favorites? So do you cover crops, compost, or or do they do they equally endeared to you? <laughs> I they're intriguing to me in in, in different ways, and um, I ha I'll. I'll have done more with cover crops at this point, but I'm I'm hoping to do so to delve into compost a little bit more in the near future. Um, and I think they both have a lot of potential and a lot to potentially offer um, when we're thinking about uh, improving soil health, um, whether that's together or in separate applications um i think remains to be seen but but i think they are they both have great potential well i know in in my travels and visiting with growers this is a topic that you know has certainly gotten more interest and gotten more traction over the last few years uh, especially as hlb has mm -hmm. uh gotten more intense and and some growers seeing some what they feel like is a response to these to these uh, practices. So we appreciate your work in it and, and we'll have you back to keep us posted on updates. I'm happy to do that. Thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for listening to this month's All In for Citrus podcast from the University of Florida Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences statewide citrus team in partnership with Southeast Agnet Radio Network.